how do you create psychologically safe spaces? Because without the psychologically safe spaces, your diversity doesn't actually matter as much because you're not creating a space where people can thrive. And so that's kind of how Bye Bye Binary came to be. My partner is non-binary and we realized that people just weren't really that accepting of it originally. So much of DEI is framed in a way that's incredibly monolithic. We think about Black folks as a group and we think about queer folks as a group and we think about Latinx folks as a group and we never think about the person who's like all of those things. And so I think we view it in this way. We're like, we can talk about Blackness or we can talk about queerness, but we never talk about when they're the same because then the conversation is much more layered. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Is your team at work psychologically safe? Take a moment to think about your workplace and the team that you're a part of and ask yourself the following questions. Do people feel comfortable in team meetings asking about things they maybe don't know or understand? Or do they feel pressured to keep quiet and hold back from asking questions? What happens when people make mistakes? Is the first reaction to hide the mistake rather than learning from it? How often do people give and receive feedback? Do individuals invite others who may be not members of the team to give feedback on the team's work? Do people ask each other and the team for help when they need it? Researchers in academia and in business have found that these kinds of questions give us an insight into a very important dimension of teamwork, psychological safety. A team feels psychologically safe when individuals believe they won't be exposed to interpersonal or social threats for engaging in learning behaviours, like asking for help, seeking feedback, admitting errors or a lack of knowledge, trying something new, or voicing a work-related dissenting view. Research has shown that the absence of such threats is strongly associated with team members bringing their whole selves to work, expressing their creativity, sharing their talents, and innovating. Given the importance of psychological safety in creating inclusion and belonging at work, in this episode, I interview Madison Butler, DEI practitioner and advocate for being human at work. Madison and I discuss why psychological safety is critical to inclusion and diversity efforts and what each of us can do to create it. Silence enables inequality to thrive at work. Two decades of research on why employees fail to speak up and call out inequality when it happens has produced consistent results. Silence in hierarchies is instinctive and safe. The gravitational pull of silence, even when managers are well-meaning and don't think of themselves as intimidating, can be overwhelming for employees. People at work are vulnerable to the logic that it's better to be silent and safe than sorry. Here, Madison shares how silence erodes psychological safety. I do a ton of consulting work and a ton of speaking around DEI, but also specifically how do you create psychologically safe spaces? 
Because without the psychologically safe spaces, your diversity doesn't actually matter as much because you're not creating a space where people can thrive. People need safety to feel like they can show up. And so that's kind of how Bye Bye Binary came to be. My partner is non-binary and we realized that people just weren't really that accepting of it originally. They constantly were misgendered. They were applying for roles and realized that like the options are male, female, unknown, which is a pretty crappy feeling when you know exactly who you are and your only option is to put unknown. So um, my partner's non-binary and it just means they don't really like relate to either male or female. They don't necessarily feel like they are either of those things. And so their pronouns are they, them. And some days they look pretty masculine and other days they look kind of somewhere in between. And for them, it's always been, they never felt wildly feminine or wildly masculine. They just kind of felt like themselves. And so, you know, over the last year, we we really kind of have just, we've talked about it. And then one day they turned to me in the car and they were like, I think I'm a they them. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. So we'll roll with that. And part of it was we wanted this podcast to exist because we wanted people to know that life isn't binary. Life is not black and white. You're not either male or female, fat or skinny, tall or short. Like there are all of these things that don't need to be black and white, yet society has made it so. And we also wanted people to know that like, this is also a journey. We mess up. I sometimes say she, and then I'm like, oh my God, they. And we don't edit that out of our podcast because we want people to know that like, chances are at some point you'll mess up (laughs) and that's okay. Psychological safety goes beyond interpersonal trust. It describes a team where people feel respected and valued for who they are, where everyone feels like their individual identities are not only seen and heard, but more importantly, are valued. I think so much of DEI is framed in a way that's incredibly monolithic. We think about Black folks as a group, and we think about queer folks as a group, and we think about Latinx folks as a group, and we never think about the person who's like all of those things. We never think about the person who has all of those identities. I actually recently got asked to do a Black History Month talk and they were like, but we don't really want you to touch on like the fact that you're queer. We really want to like stay in the lane of Blackness. And I was like, but some Black people are queer and some queer people are Black. And like the LGBTQ movement was like built on the backs of Black folks. And so I think we view it in this way. We're like, we can talk about Blackness or we can talk about queerness, but we never talk about when they're the same, because then the conversation is much more layered. Because then you have to talk about the biases that come from straight white folks. Then you're also talking about the biases that come from straight black folks. And I know for me that a ton of the biases that I kind of experience in life, they do also come from from black people as well. And that's a really important part of intersectionality is the way we communicate amongst our own communities and where our identities intersect to make us kind of part ways. And I think a lot of DEI focuses on groups as wholes rather than groups that are actually very different within said group. So one of the things I do when I talk about all of this stuff is I kind of reverse the narrative a little bit. And rather than talking about diversity in the way of intersectionality, I flip it and I talk about privilege in the way of intersectionality. And so, of course, women in general have a bunch of barriers but how do you have privilege as well as a white woman? And then as myself, I am a black queer woman, but I also have a ton of privilege. I come from a good socioeconomic background. I'm a college graduate. English is my first language. I am a citizen, so on and so forth. And so being able to break it down into like understanding that as a white woman, like, yes, you have seen barriers, but you haven't seen the same barriers as someone who is 
a white woman who's also disabled or a white woman who's also queer or a black woman who is also queer and being able to really understand like where you've been able to get a little bit further, but also still understanding the barriers that exist. For me, it is so much about dismantling the current system and building a system that works for everyone. And when you build for the most marginalized person, the stress case instead of the test case, you build a system that works for everyone. And so we have to be able to understand that different people's identities play into the barriers they overcome and have to overcome on a daily basis. And when you break it down into simplicity, like you have to be a woman or you have to be black, that doesn't actually work because I'm a woman and I'm also black, which means I have double the barriers. (laughs) Um, They're not separate, they are the same and they still impact how I navigate the world on a daily basis. Groups made up of people with different life experiences bring together many valuable perspectives, and diverse groups are better able to recognize problems and offer up creative solutions than groups with people who have similar life experiences. But what if some of the team members don't feel comfortable speaking up? What if they're afraid to share their concerns or resist asking challenging questions? What if they avoid suggesting innovative ideas because they're worried about rejection? Unfortunately, many people feel this way. According to a 2017 Gallup survey, three out of 10 employees strongly agree that their opinions don't count at work. This is why Madison says it's so important for leaders to focus on creating psychologically safe teams. I actually think the number one responsibility lies on employers. (laughs) Um, You have to create spaces where people feel safe to show up because no matter how much we want to admit it, a lot of our financial security relies on our jobs, especially if you are a full-time employee somewhere without a bunch of side hustles, you tend to tone it down, especially if your job would be at risk otherwise. And so I am very intentional to not tell people to show up the way I have. I know that there's a lot of privilege in the way that I get to show up and in the way I get to be really loud and the way I get to be emotional or not emotional. And so the responsibility is never on that of the oppressed, but on the person and system doing the oppressing. And in this case, it is our organizations and our employers. And so much of that means being intentional around the culture that we create, because authenticity means people should be able to show up however they want. And that means knowing they either show up like me and they're really out, really loud, really proud, really loud. But some people aren't going to do that. And that's okay too. Like authenticity is a personal choice about how much you want to show other people. Not everyone wants to be open about their personal life at work. Not everyone wants to talk about their personal life at all. And knowing that that is part of the lack of control a company has to have. They no longer get to paint the narrative. They don't control the narrative. They have to just let people show up. And I think that's the part that a lot of organizations struggle with, not having that level of control. I'm a really big believer that I think inclusion and diversity need to be swapped. I don't think you have any business bringing in a bunch of people with different lived experiences if you don't know what to do with them once they're there. (laughs) If you can't provide an environment where they thrive, where they feel like they can grow, where they feel protected, then you have no business hiring them. Like, go ahead, hire your 200 chads that will feel safe. That's fine because you're not going to harm them. For me, I am so focused on the harm that happens to people of color and Black folks and women in the workplace because someone was so focused on the optics of diversity. They wanted to hit some metrics. They wanted to look good to their board. They wanted to look good to their VC. And then they didn't give a shit about what happened when they got there. And for me, that is like 
almost the bigger problem is I'm not interested in being someone's black stock photo. I'm not interested in you slapping a picture of me on your pride page or on your career page to prove you have black people. And so what people need to do is create environments where people will feel safe and then invite people in. Have conversations with your current employee base, with your current population. Make sure that you are creating these cultures intentionally from day one. Make sure that you do it before you're inviting people in to be like, well, good luck. And then you're posting, you know, we hired 15 Black women, but you forgot to mention that 17 Black women just left. And so I think we focus so heavily on the metrics and the optics that we forget about like the really human-centric piece, which is like letting people feel like people and allowing them to be human in the workplace and not hiring them to lean into whiteness. The lack of psychological safety at work has major business repercussions. First, when people don't feel comfortable talking about initiatives that aren't working, the organization isn't equipped to prevent failure. And when employees aren't fully committed, the organization has lost an opportunity to unleash its full talent. If you want to understand if people in your team feel psychologically safe, consider asking these questions. First, how will team members communicate their concerns about a process that maybe isn't working? How will you respond to failure or bad news? What are the norms for managing conflict? Are you willing to accept creative out-of-the-box ideas that are not well formulated? Or do you only want tested ideas? Every leader can use these questions to reset the norms in their team. Here, Madison shares why psychological safety starts with leaders. So much of DEI is like a workshop off a shelf. And then you do the same workshop at 10 different companies, knowing that all 10 different companies have very different people and they're very different organizations and different places on their journey. And so for me, the way I conduct my consulting is, of course, I want to have like a conversation around DEI, what it is and why it matters. And then for me, breaking it down into teams, because every team has to have a very different lens. Your engineering team needs to look at DEI very differently than your people team is looking at DEI versus your sales team versus your leadership team. And I think the thing that DEI sometimes misses is leaving people with actionable items. We're cool to define it. We're cool to give you why it matters. But if you can't give people what they do with that information, then I'm not sure that we've been successful. And so unconscious bias training, I actually think is great, but also it only works when people want it to work. Like if I give someone an unconscious bias training, but they don't care about it, then nothing's going to change. And so I think there's no, again, there's no secret sauce. There are some people who are never going to lean into this. And like I said before, because white supremacy protects white mediocrity, it does not pay off for them to lean into this. And so I think also knowing that education is never going to be the answer. It is never going to be enough. Education is a huge piece of the answer, but accountability for me is the bigger piece of it. We need to make all of these things like racism, like homophobia and transphobia so socially unacceptable that people know that it alters the way they navigate the world. The same way I know being Black impacts how I navigate the world. We need to make things so socially unacceptable that it doesn't matter how much education we do. They know it's wrong, period. Because right now we're in a world where we educate and we educate and we educate. And there are going to be people who know that it's wrong and still choose to do it anyway. And so my issue is how do you change your culture when you have people like that? And so that goes back to creating policies that you actually enforce around those things. So I think that's actually the reason so many DEI 
initiatives fail is because leaders don't want to look in the mirror. It is really hard to look in the mirror and realize that you've created a monster (laughs) and that you've created a culture that is incredibly harmful to people. And so when I'm working with leaders, it is from a place of tough empathy. Like you have to look in the mirror. You have to be willing to call out your own biases because chances are your biases have molded the way your company looks, especially when you are a founder, a CEO, someone who really, really has power over what your company looks like. And so I think for me, it's just being really firm about that is knowing that you have to be upfront with like, this won't work unless you're willing to do this. single one of us can take action to create psychological safety at work by ensuring we ask powerful, open-ended questions and then listen intently to try and understand the other person's perspective. We can agree to share failures, recognize that mistakes are an opportunity to learn and grow, ask for help and freely give help when asked. Leaders can give their team members the benefit of the doubt when they take a risk, ask for help or admit a mistake. And if you make a mistake, remember the acronym ACM. Apologize, course correct, and then move on. Hopefully, by taking up some of these actions, you can begin to create an environment that truly values difference. tuning into our episode today. Before you go, if you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our weekly newsletter and contribute your story there. And if you haven't already, please pick up a copy of my book, The Fix, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or wherever you get yours. In reading The Fix, you'll discover how inequality works at work, and importantly, what we can do to fix it. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.